Hi, I'm Eric Gurna, Executive Director of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Welcome again to Please Speak Freely. This is your host, Eric Gurna, and I am here uh, sort of recording live, which I guess I always record live, but this is uh, live from location at the After School for All Challenge in Washington, D.C., and I'd like to introduce my guest, uh, Terry Peterson. Welcome, Terry. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm really happy for this opportunity to be able to talk to you. Um, because I know that your experience in, in after school and in education more broadly is rich. Um, maybe, you know, usually I introduce people, I say their title. I'm not really sure what your title is. I sort of think of you as being um, a leader in the field, and I know you're, you're currently with the After School and Community Learning Network. Um, but I'm not sure what that is. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your experience and what you do. Well, I've been very fortunate over the years to be able to work in uh education in all kinds of areas, from uh, early childhood to graduate to medical education in various mm-hmm. roles, and, and sort of from the schoolhouse to the state house to the White House. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've worked on major education reform issues at the state level and testified in many states on major reform from reading to teacher quality. Mm-hmm. But in the last few years, I've spent a lot of time um, working in this area of expanded learning opportunities after school and summers. It has a, a special interest to me. It's not the only thing you have to do, obviously. Sure. But it, it's a time and space where a lot of kids can drift from 3 to 6 from in the summers. And uh, on the other hand, it's a great time for, to help them uh, catch up, keep up, and get ahead. Mm-hmm. And it's a great way to build school community partnerships and partnerships with families for the regular, other, regular school day, it's good to do those things, too, but it's much more difficult, much more structured. Plus, young people need a whole set of other players and experiences to be success, successful in these changing times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, you, have, you mentioned varied experience, um, and I was, we were joking a little bit before we started, I, telling you a funny story of how um, you and I first met, which I'm sure you don't necessarily remember, but, um, of course, I do because it was a visit from the Secretary of Education's office to the program I worked for at the time, LA's Best After School Enrichment Program in, in Los Angeles, program that's still near and dear to my heart and that I still work with. Um, you were visiting there representing the Secretary of Education, um, and that was around the time the 21st Century Community Learning Centers first started. Could, could you tell us about your, your experience and your role with that? Yes. Uh, uh Early on in the, in the 90s, there weren't a lot of high-quality after-school programs. There were a lot of them around, but they weren't really tuning in very much to learning and engaging school and community partners. There were programs in communities and programs in schools, mm-hmm. but not necessarily talking to each other and taking advantage of that rich interconnection. Right. And in, uh, in um, 1994, when the Elementary Secondary Education Act was passed, there was a little bitty program put in by a couple members of Congress called the 21st Century Community Learning Center. And uh, in about 1997, there was a lot of interest in the country in this issue bubbled up from totally different sectors. Uh, mm-hmm. People interested in child care because so many more, there were so many more single parents where people needed a place for kids to, to stay in a safe right. location. There's this growing awareness that if they are in this space, 
maybe we could actually do some exciting learning and connect uh-huh. them up with other opportunities. The early stages of research was coming out showing that the hours from 3 to 7 are the, were the highest youth crime rates in America. Right. So working in the administration, uh, there was a conference, a national conference held in the White House, primarily sponsored by the First Lady Hillary Clinton and a lot of groups from both parties. And a lot of different folks who don't normally talk together talk together were there from education, daycare, uh, juvenile justice, uh, parenting groups. And out of that uh, discussion came a, an idea that why don't we take this little bitty program, the 21st Century Community Learning Center, which is a funding stream that both schools and or community groups can apply to run after-school and summer programs, or weekend programs for that matter, but it has to be a partnership. It can't be just the same old school day. It's got to be, it can be all about learning, but it needs to be different. And we took that little $1 million program that was serving 10 communities and grew it. And one of my jobs was to help grow this initiative with a lot of other people around the country. And eventually, uh, when we left office in 2001, 2002, the program had grown to about a billion dollars. So mm-hmm. it's from one million to one billion, from 10 schools to 10,000 schools. And that appropriation has edged up a little bit and edged down a little bit. And, but the purpose of actually this meeting that we're talking from today mm-hmm. is to inform Congress about what a great uh, deal it is to be able to invest that amount of money and have in 10,000 locations around America a chance for young people to learn new skills, to be safe, to perhaps get a nutritious snack and maybe dinner where they may not have any other place, mm-hmm. and get everybody working together for their betterment. So uh, that visit was mm-hmm. probably just at a, the point where we're trying to learn more about yeah. if we're going to grow this from 1 million and 10 schools and community groups to 10,000, what should it look like? And so I love that visit, and we were... And I still remember it now that you refresh my memory. <laughs> um, it's an interesting um, idea the, to think of going from 10 schools to 10,000. A lot of people talk about um, going to scale and replication. And it seems to me like a lot of what I hear about that, um, particularly thinking about um, some charter school models, um, thinking about the, the Promise Neighborhoods Initiative, there seems to be a notion that some people seem to hold a notion that you can take something that works one place and simply replicate it other places. That's not what happened with 21st Century. There's sort of a program model which includes a few um, elements that have to be there, partnerships, family uh-huh. engagement, the, you know, the academic piece, enrichment. But there's not um, one program design. It's not meant for one age group. It can be school-based. It can be community-based. I've been I've visited lots of 21st century programs that look very, very different from each other. Was that intentional, that way of growing? Yes, yes, it was. And I think part of it is that uh, a number of us who were involved in that effort uh, from all kinds of different perspectives had worked in places where we had a chance to try taking things to scale in other venues. Mm. I had the rare chance to lead a very successful, large-scale school reform effort mm-hmm. in a state that had 1,400 schools. Yeah. And in a very local control kind of state 
from the typical state has, you know, some suburban schools, inner cities, very, very rural schools. And, and when you're forced to think about if you really want to improve education for all kids, then you, got, you have to think about what can you do in preschool and mm-hmm. what do you do in the third grade and when, in a rural community, what do you do in the eighth grade in a suburban community, what do you do mm-hmm. in high school? Once you're forced to do that, you realize that one-size-fits-all model is not going to work in America. It might work in some other country, but our system of state control primarily for education, and then most states have given the control to school districts, and then some school districts have given control to schools, and then lay on top of that this time frame, three to six summers, no one has authority over. So you have to find partnerships. Uh, so that was, and other people had worked in this arena, for example, some of your old colleagues in California in large cities mm-hmm. with lots of sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, other of our folks that worked with me had worked in other states or federal programs, uh, run some big federal programs like teacher quality. Mm-hmm. And they too realized that they said, we got to design this differently. We got to design it so that the, the, the genesis of the specifics comes from the local people. And there's all kind of research in business and education. If you want better outcomes, the people actually work on the program, yeah. have to set the outcomes, yeah. and be enthused about them and work to achieve them. So it ha- And if you're going to have a diverse, we have a diverse country, all those age levels you mentioned and different providers working together, you've got to give them flexibility. So the idea was to provide a framework but within that framework, there's lots of possibilities of how you can put that together. And the trick is then, as we found subsequently, is then how do you hold such diverse programming mm-hmm. accountable mm-hmm. on one hand? And then how do you improve it over time because there's different goals, different objectives? But not totally. When you dig into it, they're similar. So that, re- that necessitates then partnerships and collaboration across cities, if there's city systems, and some of that's happening in the U.S., across states. There's a number of states now, after-school networks. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually the strength of this. It's, now, it's not easy to explain what it is, which is in this 30-second or 15-second soundbite uh, media climate. Yeah. That makes it difficult. But it does, in fact, match the nature of America, and also matches, I think, something really current now, and that is real interest in personalization, mm-hmm. tailor-making things, mm-hmm. uh, local control. But, but uh, even though there's local control, people want to be part of a state or want to part, be part of America. So this is a kind of a nice mix. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it seems that some people now want to change or expand the notion of what 21st century community learning centers are or what the funding can go towards. So I, I recently had the opportunity to speak with Jennifer Davis of the National Center on Time and Learning on Please Speak Freely. And um, I guess she was also she also worked in the department sometime in that era and talked about being involved with 21st Century and the idea that from her perspective, 21st Century needs to sort of evolve to current thinking um, and that therefore schools and districts and states should have the choice to use that funding uh, for work to expand and extend the regular school day as opposed to it being restricted to use in after-school 
summer weekends out of school time. How do you feel about the the current debate, the current conversation about 21st century and just the broader mm-hmm. field of after school in that way? Well, I think uh, probably uh, I would start a little different place, sure. and that is uh, if what is the goal of the school improvement effort, and mm-hmm. does uh, extending the school day fit into that, number one, and two, do you have the money to do that? Mm. Extending the school day is a very expensive proposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the models that have been talked about the most, uh, a school of, let's say, 850 students, it would cost almost a million dollars to extend the school day an hour and a half. Mm. There aren't many places around America that you can find a million dollars year after year right. to do that. Second point is that I've worked in education with educators. I'm an educator for a long time. And education is like gravity. If you don't have a real push to do something different, it just falls back to like it was. Mm-hmm. And I, the concern a lot of people have, and I have, that just extending the school day, you may start out with high aspirations and different aspirations. It will end up, for the most part, being like the previous six hours or six Uh and a half. And so is adding another hour of the same thing at three in the afternoon a good use of time if it costs a million dollars and you can't sustain it? So now that play that out now with the 21st Century Program, 21st Century Community Learning Center Program. The typical center is funded at about $150,000. So this isn't a zero-sum game. So to extend the day an hour, hour and a half in a school of 850 students, mm-hmm. you would have to close down seven current 21st century programs, all of which are in high poverty communities already. Mm-hmm. Right now, in the latest statistics I have seen, the typical 21st century community learning center, regular participants, 70 to 72% of them, are on free or reduced lunch. So they're very concentrated. Uh, So you'd be taking programming away from seven sites to give one site an extended day. Uh, So my preference would be, let's talk about how you're going to reform those first six and a half hours. Right. First, and it's interesting, I had two people talk to me about this in the last couple days. One, a principal who has an interesting job. She's both the music coordinator for a school district of 6,000 students, Mm -hmm. the elementary school principal, and runs the whole district summer learning program. Wow. And she said, we really should think of it this way. Think of school reform, whatever the day is, whatever hours it is. Let's get that right. Then she said, then you should think about how can we expand time and partnerships after school and summers. Mm -hmm. When you put those two together, that's education reform. But even then, you have to go beyond that for a lot of struggling students. What do you do in the community in the evening, weekends? How do you engage families? That's kind of the total picture for really at-risk children and youth. So I think what happens if you just extend the day, first of all, you can end up with more of the same, very easy by default, even if you don't start out that way. Right. Secondly, it'll gobble up all the money. So you just threw away the chance to add more time in more places 
build school community partnerships, involve families. Uh, some of the literature I've seen from the folks promoting the extended day have no reference hardly to families, mm-hmm. which is sort of strange in my estimation. Mm-hmm. And when, they, when you push them, you say, one way to keep sort of folks honest about really offering more engaging and broader learning in an extended day is to have community groups equally at the table, which they should be able to then apply for grants mm-hmm. with schools as partner, mm-hmm. or as we currently have it, that can happen, or schools can apply with communities, communities as partner, but it's a, an equal partnership. And some of the advocates of extending day don't want that. They don't want necessarily community partners, and they don't want to necessarily include families, And they don't like to, if you push them and say, okay, let's assure, have some way to assure that the learning will will be different than the typical school day. Let's talk about engaged learning, hands-on learning, uh, doing integrated learning, let's say uh, writing across the curriculum, science across the curriculum, Mm -hmm. arts across the curriculum. They won't go there. They'll say, well, yeah, we'd like that, but we won't require it. So when I hear, no, you can't require partnerships, you can't, can't require that we work on family involvement, and we can't require engaged learning, to me that sounds like more of the same. Right. And it's a very expensive way to get more of the same. And the final point on this is that if it costs a million a year, year after year, why would you put that in a competitive grant program? Want to just fold it into the why? The yeah, what, so it should. So getting. it seems like the place if you want to do extend a day, the logical place, and if you want to use federal money, the logical place is Title One. Right. Why wouldn't you say? Right. And I have thought and and and, and thought while I was in the U.S. Department of Education, but I, and uh, was swamped by other things that maybe all of Title One should be used for expanding time, mm-hmm. extended day after school summers. Uh, because you hear a lot of cases of teachers saying, you know, kids get pulled out for this and they get pulled out for that. And, and you, so, but that would be the place to fund uh, extended day. If you don't do it there, you quickly reduce your possibilities of how many extended day programs, which is, a, we started out talking about uh, going to scale. And something that quickly I've seen working on federal and state programs, if people on the ground don't see that it's scalable, mm-hmm. they're not going to get involved. So if you have a program with a billion dollars and it costs a million per school, that means you can only get to a 1,000 schools in the right. whole country. Right. We have 40,000 schools in America that have more than 40% low-income children. Mm-hmm. So if you're in those other 39,000 high-poverty schools, you're going to say, why should I get on this boat? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not in the odds of me getting it or what is it? I don't know what, 2.5%? <laughs> so, yeah, no, I can't do that. So, you, so yeah. that's why, to me, it doesn't make sense to extend the day with 21st century money because, first of all, you'd knock out after-school and summer learning programs where we have now increasing evidence that quality programs make a difference on grades and attendance, on behavior, all the things that seem to keep kids in school to graduation, which is a huge national priority. Right. 
so you're losing that, and you're gaining. You aren't gaining anything. At, at best, it's a it's a no win, and it may be a loss because you've now got all these communities that were into this field, at least in part, for some students, can't compete because there's not sufficient funds. Is it's interesting because I think that a lot of the, the folks who are pushing for the flexible use of 21st century for extended day or expanded learning opportunities or whatever we're going to call it, there's too many terms being thrown around right now, I think. But a lot of them would, Jennifer Davis, I believe, her part of her response at least would be that they do want the community partners at the table, that they do want to reexamine what happens with those six and a half hours. The, the part of what you how you framed it that really was useful for me is that even with the best efforts, because we do see some individual partnerships around this in New York and other places where it it seems like the community organization really is, or community partners really are an equal partner at the table with the principal and the school. And that's wonderful. Um, But I like the notion of it's sort of the, the gravity notion that, you know, that's fine for now. It's a pilot program. We're giving it all this attention, and these folks who are involved really mean it, and they're, they're doing good work now. But the tendency is going to be for it to fall back to, to, to quote-unquote, normal um, as time goes on and as you, as you get bigger because everyone's not going to be the same as that principal who's that's in that right. partnership. But what's, what's very telling to me um, gets to what you were talking about about you started talking a little bit about how you would change, how you would see change in the regular school day around writing across the curriculum and science across the curriculum and project-based and integrating more partnerships with families, and we could go on, um, on on your views there. I think the views there are very in line with many folks in the after-school field, many folks in what are considered um, progressive circles. Um, and that, it, it so often boils down to that for me, that the the current focus on um, the the notion of tying accountability only to test scores or mainly to test scores and tying so much of the curriculum to um, scores and even grades um, is so sacrosanct to so to so many and if we questioned that you know I put it to Jennifer Davis well what if we shifted the focus away from that and and teachers and 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 students didn't, and, and families didn't have to spend so much time focusing on getting ready for the tests, taking the tests, talking about the test, stressing out about the test, arguing about the test. If all of that was off the table, wouldn't we then have more time for all of these other things without extending the day at all? And, um, and her response was, and it, it's in the podcast, which is, which is already you know, up on the website, um, her response was, there's an there's a conversation to be had there, and certainly I, I believe that she gave some, that she gave some uh, indication that she would be open to less of a focus on testing, but that she's not ready to, to push in that direction that accountability is important, the tests need to be improved, the, the way we get the information needs to be improved. Um, I put the same question to Jeff Canada, head of Harlem Children's Zone, who I haven't spoke with on the podcast, but was at a conference um, recently, the Beyond School Hours conference, where he gave a keynote and had the opportunity for question and answers. And my question for him was, um, based on his sort of operating principle, that what's good for middle class and wealthier children and families is good for everybody, and that we should be expecting the same sorts of resources and supports for economically poor kids as we would be providing for, as as are provided currently for, for wealthier kids. 
taking that principle, I said, it seems to me that the, the wealthiest among us um, you know, don't, aren't faced with the kinds of what I see as toxic pressures of, of the high-stakes testing. I mean, if you look at, at the example that I used was the Sidwell School here in Washington where the Obama kids go. Um, they don't deal with that. They don't deal with those pressures. So if they're not dealing with that, and if they're getting what's considered the best education, why shouldn't we fight for you know, the young people who we fight, who represent, who we work with, the families who we work with and represent um, and engage with, for them having the same sort of learning environment? And he um, said the same thing. I'm not ready to, to say that. He said the tests need to be improved. We need, we need to get the, the data quicker, we need, you know, that there's improvements to be made, but, he, but I'm not ready to say that. And it wasn't even, I disagree, it was I'm not ready to say that. So it seems to me like we're often sort of circling around this, this main issue, which is what drives education in general? How do we define success? Well, that's, that's true. And, and I think we probably start with the specifics without talking about where we want to go. Mm. So, for example... Uh, I think there's pretty universal agreement now that almost young, almost every young person in school today should graduate from high school. That when you look at any projection of jobs and to be a good citizen, sure, that's that's pretty much almost a minimum requirement. But you know, 30 percent of our young people don't graduate from high school, and that percentage has been stuck there mm. for a long time. So let's look at some of the research on what are predictors of graduating from high school. Some of the work that uh, Belfance and, and others have done, they've looked at as early as sixth grade. You can predict, you know, not with certainty, but a lot of degree of certainty, mm-hmm. what uh, young people won't graduate from high school. And what do they find? It's poor attendance. Mm-hmm. It's misbehavior. It's uh, failing grades. Uh, it's not being engaged in sort of the life of a school. And test scores. But when he runs the statistical analysis and puts those, other, those factors I just mentioned in first, test scores are almost immaterial, except if, you're, if young people, if I remember right, are in the bottom 15 percentile. So it seems to me if we're looking long term, we say we want more young. We almost want everyone to graduate from high school. So what? So then it would seem that both in the school day mm-hmm. and after school and summers, we would work on improving those factors: grades, being engaged in school. Part of that is completing homework. Kids miss homework, then they get disengaged. Being involved in activities beyond the typical school day. So they seem at some attachment to learning and school, even if the program's not in a school. Well, we now have some evidence. Uh, Durlach and Weisberg just did a fabulous meta-analysis of some 68 studies, mm-hmm. studies, yeah. not, not school, <laughs> studies, 68 studies, yeah. and found that programs that, in fact, offer programming that builds social social and emotional development and academic development, not just academic development, do in fact have meaningful gains in attendance, less misbehavior, better grades, better achievement. So I think that helps give you a 
clue to what you said is right on target. But I don't think uh, we should necessarily use the same metrics for after school that you do for in school. Because then you're almost for certain going to guarantee the extended day is going to look like more of the same. Right. So I think I, I would really separate school with its goals and, 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 and uh, metrics and after school and summers. Some of the metrics will be similar and some will be different. Mm. Why should we think that a young person at 3 or 4 in the afternoon would want to learn the same things in the same way they may have at 10 in the morning or in a beautiful summer June day at 1 in the afternoon that you would, you know, want to learn reading and math the same way you might have at 9 in a regular school day. So this allows you to... Now, that doesn't mean I'm saying they shouldn't work together. Absolutely should work together, but I would almost plan each other's strengths. Mm -hmm. In other words, don't just say, let's make it uniform, and that's the danger of the extended day. Let's make it all uniform. We, we know the six and a half isn't working so hot. Now let's make it eight. That makes no sense mm -hmm. whatsoever. Let's redo the six and a half. Let's do after school somewhat different but interconnected and related and take advantage of the strength and opportunities of both. And because after school programs tend to use school community partnerships, volunteers, college students, high school students, the costs are substantially less. So it's more likely to be sustainable over time. So one goal is let's increase the high school graduation rate. Another uh, goal we hear a lot is let's help young people be more career and college ready. There's some really good uh, long-term studies done by Cliff Edelman uh, in the U.S. Department of Education. He, I think, is retired now, but they were multi-year studies. Looking at, and, and, and here is where you see a real gulf between low-income students and high-income students in going to college, mm -hmm. particularly post-secondary institutions of any kind. There what seems to make a huge difference is the course, courses young people take. Mm -hmm. But it isn't just math and reading courses. It's advanced science courses. It's advanced placement courses in any subject. It could be music. It could be whatever. It's taking other languages. They are for higher income students. It, it makes marginal difference, very little difference, if they take these courses. It helps if you really want to go to a high-end mm -hmm. university. But for low-income students, it changes their odds of going to post-secondary edu post education dramatically. Hmm. So then if that's a real goal... Then let's look. And by the way, he found something similar that Balfant's found on dropouts. If you include first the courses these young people take and, and differentiate them between kind of the more challenging courses, test scores don't make that much difference. Right. So we're saying we want to increase the drop, I mean, increase the graduation rate and we want to increase the post secondary going rate. But we sort of ignore the big studies that tell us a broader range of results we should watch and look for. And that, if you do that, then you'll see that test scores are part of it. But you need a multi uh, set of multi indicators, and and have a way to intercede when those indicators aren't looking so hot. Years ago, I had the 
opportunity to put together, actually, as I mentioned earlier, a huge state education reform package. And one of the drivers then was the nation at risk. Mm -hmm. We need a longer school day. Mm -hmm. That's still driving some of the folks pushing a longer school day Mm -hmm. 30 years later. And what we found in our polling that the public thought, just as this focus group I mentioned, the summer of swing voters across America found, is that they said it looks like more of the same. And I think that, you know, you can't, sometimes the American public gets it, gets it right. Sure. Uh, and I think that's a, a concern that why would we do more of the same? Not saying that we shouldn't reform the school day and not saying that after school and summer learning shouldn't be better and more engaged. But I really look at them as two interrelated but separate ways to reach young people. Why would you put all your eggs in one basket? It makes no sense to me and a costly basket. Well, Terry Peterson, thanks for being on Please Speak Freely. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank mm-hmm. you.